This morning is from Galatians chapter 6. This morning we finish our study of the book of Galatians. We'll be focusing on verses 11 through 18. That's found on page 975 in the Bibles that have been provided for you there in the rows. If you do not have your own copy of the scriptures with you this morning, I invite you to follow along there or in your own copy as I read. Galatians chapter 6, beginning at verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not, do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the, Lord has been, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we pray first for the children and the teachers who just left this room going to their own classes to hear your word taught and explained. Lord, we pray for the teachers that you would give them clarity of mind and speech. Lord, that the truth that they impart to these young lives would be clear. Lord, we pray for our precious children, so many young blessings that you have given this church. Lord, that, that each one, each heart and mind present in class this morning, Lord, would be open and sensitive and, and even hungry for the truth that they will hear. We ask that your Holy Spirit would bring about understanding and salvation and growth into these young lives. And Lord, I pray that as well for us. Lord, I thank you for this study from Galatians. Lord, thank you for the many truths that we have been exposed to. Thank you, Lord, for how you have even used this book uh, to, to, to help us walk well through challenging times. And I pray, Lord, that as we conclude this study this morning, Lord, that these powerful verses, Lord, would shape our lives as your people. Lord, I pray that your spirit would bring understanding and, and conviction and comfort and even courage, Lord, to, to do what is necessary in light of what you reveal in your word. Lord, for anyone here who is yet to believe the gospel, 
Lord, I, I pray that today you would open their eyes and their hearts to the truth. Lord, help them to see their, their guilt before a holy God from whom nothing can be hidden and awaken faith in their lives, Lord, that they would turn away from their sin and that they would turn to Christ in faith and have their sins forgiven. Let today be the day of salvation for them. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, unless you were under a rock last week, are wise enough to avoid the news, then undoubtedly you heard something about a, a, a missile warning that, that took place in Hawaii. Thankfully, a false alarm. Some of you have, have family in Hawaii and, and have heard firsthand how the alert affected the people that were on the islands. The, the Doggerty family, praise God, are, are back with us this morning. Uh, they were actually vacationing in Hawaii when this happened, so they experienced it firsthand. So if you want to hear about it from their perspective, I, I'm sure they have some good stories. But, but Sunday, but before the service, I, I was speaking with uh, Christine Volgaris a little bit, and uh, you know, it, it had just happened, taken place uh, not long beforehand, and so we were, we were talking about it because her daughter lives in Hawaii, and uh, she was talking about her daughter's impressions of the things that went on, and, and I speculated, you know, I wonder if the churches have more people in them today in light of what happened with the false alarm. And, and I don't know, I certainly hope that was the case. But, but you can imagine how frightening it would be, right, to, 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 to be there living in America's version of paradise, at least, with the beautiful islands, great temperature, and your phone comes up and, and says that there's a missile approaching fast. You're, you're not going to survive. And, and we've talked about this a little bit as a family. Is that, is that a good thing or a bad thing to know what's coming? Well, in some senses, I would say it's a good thing. You have the opportunity to make sure that you're, 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 you're saying the things that need to be said to the people that you care about. Huh. The flip side of that is it would be terrifying, right? Because you know something bad's about to happen. Well, thankfully, it was a, a false alarm. But, but we have to ask ourselves, would such a significant scare taking place in our lives cause, cause someone to consider or to make significant life decisions, right? That, that's a reasonable question. You, you, whatever the fear might be, it, it should cause us to stop and, and take stock of our lives. What do I believe? Now, now that I'm facing death, is there really a God? Maybe a, non, a non-believer might think. If so... <laughs> I don't know how much time I got, but, 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 but how can I make things right? I'm sure thoughts like that went on during this 30 plus minutes of, of, of thinking they were going to die. I, I hope this was the case for many people there, but there's also some very discouraging news that, that, that has come out of that hour after they found out it was a false alarm. In the hour after the alert was canceled, visits to pornographic websites in Hawaii 
jumped 49% higher than what they would be on average during a given day there. They just thought they were going to die. They got the great news, the false alarm. And that's the follow-up? Now, now we know this wasn't the case for everyone there, but, but a significant number of people went there to deal with the stress. I find that very sad. Instead of seeking out family members or even stopping to utter prayers of, of, of gratitude, they sought solace in that a perversion. Now, that's very sad, but, but if you understand human nature and, and the power of sin, it's not really that surprising. And, and I don't share this statistic in some way shame unbelievers. I expect unbelievers to live like unbelievers. But it really does illustrate the power of sin in corrupting our priorities, does it not? Here's the bottom line, whether you are a, are a Christian or a non-Christian, the way that you live reflects both what you truly believe and also what you value. This is a reality that cannot be escaped. Now, as the Apostle Paul closes his letter to the Galatians, he does so by calling the Galatians to, to, to stand firm, really, through following his example. You see, Paul understood that, that, that what the Judaizers were seeking to inject in the church would so change the, 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 the Galatians Christians' views of the gospel and what it meant to be a follower of Christ... That, that, that the consequences would be both eternal and devastating. To get so focused on, 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 on doing, fulfilling the, the ceremonial law as a means for earning God's favor would mean to turn one's back on what Christ has done to make us righteous in God's sight. And, and Paul understood that, that, that that's not a matter of splitting hairs or opinions that differ. But the very heart of the gospel was at stake. He, he understood that, that what they understood about God, what they believed about God, would shape how they lived. Would shape what they cared about. They had to choose between two competing message, messages and the choice that they made would have eternal consequences. Paul begins to end his letter 
by first focusing on the hypocrisy of the false teachers. He's, he's going to set a contrast here between the false teachers and their ministry to his own. So in verses 11 through 13, let's consider the hypocrisy of the false teachers. Paul writes, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Now, Paul begins with a reference to his handwriting. This is one of the only places we see him do this. And there have been several theories as to why Paul might have done just that in verse 11. Now, there are some scholars that believe that Paul wrote this entire letter to the Galatians himself rather than using a scribe, a professional scribe, which was his normal practice. Now, if you have bad handwriting, then you can perhaps appreciate the, the, the desire to have someone who might be able to, 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 to write for you. But, but these scribes would write in such a way that, 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 that the letters and everything would, would be laid out and very pleasing to the eye and easy to read, especially in relation to a large letter like this. The, 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 the scribe's handwriting would, would have a fluidity to it, a, almost a cursive style. Now, remember, earlier in our study of Galatians, in chapter 4, Paul references, actually, a bodily illness that involved his eyes that led to his preaching the gospel to the Galatians to begin with. And, and if that illness had somehow led to a weakened eyesight... Paul's writing in larger letters would have made sense, right? They would have lacked a, the, the flair of a professional scribe. Now, other scholars uh, hold to the view that, that, that Paul did use a scribe to write most of the letter, but, but wrote the salutation himself, which also was the practice of all his letters. The, the, the large letters these people believe... Uh, were, were to emphasize the seriousness of, of what he was about to write. See, see how big I'm writing this? Take notice. The, these false teachers, they don't care about you. So, so, so they make the point that, that, that it may not be related to his eyesight, but more the emphasis with which he's writing these last few words. He, he knows he's finishing up his letter, and so he, he takes it from the scribe and begins to write himself. Don't miss this. It, it would be like our using a, a larger font, our, our, our bold-faced type, to, to emphasize something in a letter or an email, you, you want the reader to take notice. Now, beyond speculation, we, we simply don't know the specifics, but, but, but I certainly think it's obvious from the tone of this entire letter that as Paul concludes Galatians, he wants his readers to feel the weight of his conviction and concern for the spiritual well-being of the Galatian believers. 
And he also wants to warn them again about the danger the Judaizers pose to their faith. And starting in verse 12, we see the hypocrisy of the false teachers illustrated in three ways. First of all, we, we see their hypocrisy in that they feared man. They feared man. And, and the fear of man, if we're honest, can, can be a powerful motor, motivator in anyone's life. But, but this is especially true of false teachers. Now, the fear of man, we use that phrase, and, and that is the, 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 the flip side of the same coin that would say someone who loves the approval of men. They're, they're motivated by what others think of them, whether they're longing to be approved of or they're afraid someone will condemn, condemn them. It's, the, it's, the, it's just two sides of the same coin. And we see this in verse 12. Paul writes, it's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And that phrase, a good showing in the flesh, is, is evidence of that desire for man's approval. They, they wanted to look spiritual, spiritual and to be looked up to within the context of the church. But at the same time, they also wanted to be accepted by the religious Jews. So what they did was they sought influence within the church and, and enforcing circumcision and the ceremonial law on the Galatians. They, they weren't showing a, a true concern for the spiritual well-being of the Galatians. They, they were focused on how converting the Galatians to Judaism made them look in the eyes of the religious Jews. In the second half of verse 12, we, we see their fear of man exposed. So they do these things only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, that begs the question, does it not? Why, why would the Judaizers feel persecution for teaching anything about the cross of Christ? And, and that phrase, cross of Christ, is, is another way of Paul saying the gospel. It's not talking about simply the physical implement that Jesus died on reference to the gospel, what was accomplished there. So, so, so why would the Judaizers fear persecution for the gospel? Well, if you were here this summer, then, then perhaps you remember that, that we studied various scenes from the life of the apostle Paul. Now, you, you remember on the missionary journeys, what, what happened when Paul would show up in a city? Well, he, he would first go to the synagogue, if there was one, and, and begin to prove and teach from the scriptures that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. And typically, when Paul showed up at the synagogue to begin with, he was well-received. We like what you're teaching. And so they would invite him back, and, and when he would come back, what would happen? They would have a bigger crowd there, and, and when the bigger crowd showed up, the, the, the religious Jews would become jealous. You can't teach here anymore. So what did Paul do? Well, he went out to the marketplace and, and began to teach the Gentiles who would be in the cities and would draw an even greater crowd, which would drive the religious Jews even nuttier. What happened next? Do you remember? The religious Jews would begin to stir up trouble in the city. 
which would lead to, to Paul and his associates being driven from the city or persecuted in some way. Is that ringing any bells? <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it does. But we see this time and again in the book of Acts. But it doesn't stop there. The religious Jews weren't just happy to, to get Paul out of town, but they began to follow him town after town after town, stirring up trouble, causing persecution, and making it difficult for him to be faithful in his ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles. But he pressed on. The Judaizers, the false teachers, they wanted the crowds that Paul had. But they did not want the rejection that came from the religious Jews who had influence. In fact, they just didn't want to avoid persecution. They wanted to be accepted by these influential people. They wanted to be respected, celebrated as those who introduced Judaism to the Christian church rather than furthering the ministry of the gospel. Now, I would say that this is something that is common among most false teachers today. They want approval and acceptance, but ultimately they are unwilling to truly pay the pay, pay the. Pay the cost of preaching the true gospel. They, they, they want to change the message. Because the cross calls people to die to their own desires. Uh, another evidence of, uh, of the hypocrisy of, uh, of the false teachers is, is revealed in the fact that rather than following Christ, these false teachers, secondly, followed their own desires. Look at the beginning of verse 13. It says, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. <laughs> now, did you catch that? E even the, fa the false teachers didn't even follow their own teaching. They while they were emphasizing the importance of the law of God, they themselves were neglecting to practice what they thought was so important, or at least they taught was so important. The Judaizers wanted to make the Galatian Christians more Jewish when they themselves weren't very faithful Jews. It's interesting, isn't it? It's hypocrisy. But here's the rub, even as it relates to the ceremonial law. We've talked about the moral law, how, how the purpose of that law is not to serve as a roadmap for us to earn righteousness, but it reveals what? Our, our need for someone who is righteous on our behalf. The, the purpose of the ceremonial law what, what was to reveal how unclean the people really were. That's why priests in the Old Testament had to go through washings and all these other things. And if they came in contact with anything, they were declared unclean. And, and what God is doing there is, is painting a picture of, of how incredibly other he is 
No impurities, no unrighteousness, no uncleanliness in him. And and so the whole purpose of the ceremonial law, much like the moral law, is say, listen, we can't get there without God's help. So, So they would even messed up the whole purpose of the law to begin with. Now, now contrast this with the gospel. It's only through what Jesus accomplishes for us in his perfect life, in his sacrificial death, and in his resurrection from the dead that we are made righteous, that we are made acceptable to God and makes us accepted by God. And we receive this gift not through religious acts, but through what? Through faith. In the one who was faithful for us, Jesus Christ the Lord. The the, the desire of the false teachers wasn't what was going to be best for the Galatians. The the desire of the false teachers was was to get what they could from the Galatians, or from the the Gentiles, the the position, any financial gain they could muster, and and probably most important, the, the acceptance of their fellow Jews. And this was true no matter how sincere they may have seemed. This is true today. The the motives of false teachers are, are rooted in their own desires no matter how sincere their motives might be. Let me say that again. The motives of false teachers are rooted in their own desires no matter how sincere their motives might be. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. And sadly, it can be true of those who have been affected by that teaching as well. If the aim or the goal of a teaching is ultimately rooted in the flesh, then it's not unreasonable for to come to the conclusion that those who are influenced by those teachers will ultimately be fleshly themselves. That's Paul's point here. Paul, Paul knew this, and he wanted to protect the Galatians at all costs. The, the, the final proof of their hypocrisy is, is also seen in their desire to flaunt their control over those who were influenced by their teaching. Look at the end of verse 13. Paul writes, But they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. Now, this further exposes the motives of the Judaizers. They they weren't motivated by love for the Galatians, but they were motivated by their ability to flaunt their influence over them. They, they wanted to be able to brag about the number of people they converted to their twisted perversion of the faith. The Galatians, many, had fallen for the lie that the Judaizers were offering them something good. But Paul points out, by the very nature of their teaching, the Judaizers really had no love at all for the Galatians. They were ultimately a means to an end, to to, to legitimize and puff up the false teachers. These are obvious qualities from 
Galatians chapter 6, and I believe there are also obvious qualities of, uh, that are present in false teachers of our day as well. Charlatans peddle a version of Christianity that minimizes the work of Christ in redeeming his people in order to gain money and fame and, and influence and notoriety for themselves. They, they fear man because they are constantly working to gain approval. Theirs is a gospel that would cost them little. They won't go to the hard places or, or take the stand on the hard issues because that might cost them followers. False teachers today also follow their own desires. In fact, most are slaves to their own desires because they are not redeemed to begin with. It's made evident by their preoccupation with temporary things. It is a flesh-focused ministry that's centered on what they can gain in this life rather than on eternal truths and prioritizing our lives in light of those truths. Modern-day false teachers also boast in their influence over others. They, they, they legitimize themselves and their perverted teaching by pointing to the, the number of followers they have as, as proof that they are somehow fruitful in their ministry. The end justifies the means rather than faithfulness to the truth of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, we must come to realize as those who would seek to be faithful in our walk with Christ that we live in an age where there are false teachers among us. And it is only through the Word of God that we gauge the validity of the message. The, the threat is real just as real today as it was when Paul originally penned these words in such large letters. Kosti Hen is, is, is a name that some of you may have heard about recently. Maybe not. He, he shares the same last name as, as one of the most well-known false teachers today because Kosti is Benny Hen's nephew. He's becoming, Costi is becoming well-known because he was once part of his uncle's ministry empire, but, but he has since had his eyes opened to everything that is wrong with Benny Hinn Ministries. He has written numerous articles on the dangers of ministries like his uncle's, and also he shared his testimony of how God has opened his eyes to the truth. Even... In fact, he and another pastor together have, have written a book that has either just come out or is about to come out called Defining Deception, where he, he shares the lessons that he's learned. L listen to him in his own words in, in an article from Christianity Today. Costi writes, Almost 15 years ago, on a shoreline outside of Athens, Greece, I stood confident in my relationship with the Lord and my ministry trajectory. I was traveling the world on a private golf string jet doing gospel ministry, his quotes, and enjoying every luxury money could buy. 
after a comfortable flight and my favorite meal, lasagna, made by our personal chef, we prepared for a ministry trip by resting at the Grand Resort Laganissi, boasting my very own ocean view villa complete with a private pool and over 2,000 square feet of living space. I perched on the rocks above the water's edge and rejoiced in the life I was living. After all, I was serving Jesus Christ and living the abundant life He promised. Little did I know that this coastline was part of the Aegean Sea. The same body of water the Apostle Paul sailed while spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was just one problem. We weren't preaching the same gospel as Paul. He goes on to, to, to describe his life and his involvement in, in ministering with his father and his uncle. It was a ministry and a message focused on, on getting all that you can in this life from your follow, followers. Personal happiness and material gain were the goals rather than a call to live in a way that glorifies God. It was years later that God opened his eyes to the truth of his word, which ultimately led to his being truly saved through faith in Christ. Brothers and sisters, false teaching always diminishes the work of Christ in some way. When temporary gains are treasured above the God to whom we are reconciled, the gospel has been missed. When there is an emphasis on personal effort as a means to earn God's favor and acceptance, the gospel has been missed. When we place a greater power in ourselves than we recognize in Almighty God, then the gospel has been missed and we have been deceived. Sincerity in believing the wrong things can never take the place of faith in Christ as he has been revealed in the Bible. The fruit of falsehood is always hypocrisy. And Paul warns the Galatians to guard against the teaching of the Judaizers and thus warns us as well to be on guard against those who would pervert the word of God. Paul then goes on in verses 14 to 16 to emphasize the centrality of the gospel. Paul writes, But, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. In these verses, Paul places the gospel front and center as the message that leads to true salvation. He ends verse 13 by, by pointing out that the Judaizers' goal was to, to be able to boast in their ability to cause the Galatians to adopt Jewish law by being circumcised. And, and Paul contrasts this with, with, with the fact that here he was, a, an apostle, who had actually seen the resurrected Lord in his glory, but he would only boast 
in what Christ had done, not in what he had accomplished, not in, in what he had seen. We, we know what boasting is. That, that's not a word that's uncommon to us. We've all done it, and we still do it. Boasting flows from what? From the things that we are, are, are proud of. But, but the Greek word that, that's translated boast has a little different flavor to it. It's also translated glory. Glory as a verb, not a noun or, 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 or an adjective. Glory in the sense of, of our response, something that we delight in, something that we rejoice in. So Paul says, far be it for me to, to rejoice or take delight in anything but what Christ has done. The, the message is simple. The source of Paul's delight and rejoicing is found in what Jesus accomplishes in his gospel. There, there's no self-focused pride in his own accomplishments, but, but a powerful desire to see God receive the honor and glory that is due his name. And listen, really, when we understand the gospel, can there really be any other response than wanting to see God honored? When we understand it, well, let, let, let's consider the gospel for a moment. Starts where? With God. God who is holy. God perfect. God who lacks nothing. He has no defects. He is the source of all good. Knowing him is, is the greatest knowledge anyone could ever gain. That, that's a pretty great picture of God, is it not? Well, let, let, let's consider us. The picture's not quite so pretty. We're not holy. We're, we're born into a fallen world. We were born predisposed to, to sin. And sin we have done since we've been able to do so. Sin separates us from God. Sin makes us utterly incapable to do anything to fix our sin problem. Sin ultimately is treason against a God who deserves and, and requires his people to be holy. Sin makes us worthy of judgment. The judgment for our sin is spiritual death for eternity. This death is, is hell where God's wrath exists eternally. This is a place that every one of us deserves to go. Because before Jesus restored us to God through his perfect life, death on the cross, where, where he bore God's wrath against our sin and resurrection, before we were saved by Jesus' faithfulness, if we're honest, we understand that we hated God. And we wanted to be in his place. We wanted to be preeminent over our lives. We wanted to be in charge. We, we were dead in sin and we were unable to save ourselves. But God, but God opened our eyes to, to the salvation he supplies through Jesus. Jesus who was faithful for us. Jesus who saves us, not because we were lovely or lovable, but because he is loving. Remember, brother Christian, sister Christian, your addition to the gospel was your sin. Great job. Jesus 
did the hard work. What else or who else could we glory in? Do you really want to take credit for who you were before you came to Christ? Lord, I hope not. If you do, you don't understand the gravity of the situation. It is worse than I was just able to explain. And that was a pretty clear picture of how different we are from God. What else could we glory in, Christians? In our ability to believe? Faith is a gift. We need to, to wake up and realize this. Paul says, listen, this is all I glory and rejoice in because there's nothing else I can do in light of what God has done but give Him the glory. And he doesn't stop there. Listen to the rest of uh, verse 14. It says, but, but, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul will only glory in the gospel of Jesus because the gospel has, has fundamentally changed Paul's understanding of and his orientation towards the world and even towards himself. His entire worldview has been reoriented because of what Christ has done. Paul says, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Well, Bible scholars, what happens when someone was crucified? What was the purpose of crucifixion? It wasn't a chiropractic treatment. It was what? It was capital punishment. It was the worst way to, to, to die at the hands of the state. The purpose of crucifixion was death. That was the point. It was a terrible way to die. And because Jesus died for Paul in this way, reconciling him to God, Paul understood that he could no longer be ruled by and, and enslaved to the evil ways and systems of this fallen world. The, the power of sin had been broken in his life, and he need not any longer be swept along by worldly desires. So in his understanding, because of who he now was in Christ and what Christ had done, he understood that the world was dead to him and he dead to the world. And we must adopt this perspective if we are to be faithful in this life, dear ones. I'm serious. I am serious as I could possibly be before you this morning. Consider the great price that Christ paid to redeem you. He died, and in that death, he bore God's wrath against every sin you will ever commit. Every act of treason. He paid the ultimate price to restore you to God. How can we be so quick to, to long for and, and to love the way we used to live? Paul says we can't. We can't. We're dead to that. Not, not, not can't in the sense that we are un, unable to go back that way. We do it all the time, right? But we can't in the sense that we mustn't. We should not 
go back? What did we leave that we have not received in in greater measure and that is greater than, than all that we were saved from? We must not go back because it's no longer compatible with who we now are in Christ. He died to set us free. So we must see ourselves as dead to those things to which we were once enslaved. It's dead to us, and we are dead to it because we are now alive in Christ. Roll that around in your mind today. I'm dead to those bad things because now I'm alive in Christ. I hope you will write verse 14 down and come back to it throughout the week. And the reason I'm encouraging you to do that is because I want to remember, I want you to remember, number one, who you were before Jesus saved you. Even if you were young when you came to faith in Christ, your sin was disgusting in the sight of God. It was an affront to His character. Then I want you to take time to reflect on the price that Jesus paid to redeem you. Then I want you to remind yourself, using verse 14, time and again that the sinful systems, ideologies, and even desires that once were influencing your life, controlling your life, you are now dead to. And you're dead because you have life in Christ. Way back in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul wrote this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now the gospel was central in Paul's life, and it totally transformed his perspective and his priorities. Jesus died for us, therefore we too have died to who we were, and now we live for Him. This is our our calling as Christians. We've seen the gospel as the source of Paul's boasting, his rejoicing, his glorying. We've seen that it changed his perspective and shaped his priorities. And in verse 15, we, we see that it also is, is the source of our regeneration. Why, why could Paul say so confidently that he's only going to glory in the gospel of Christ? Well, how can he say so confidently that, that he's now dead to the world because he's alive to God? Because he understands that he's a new creation in Christ. Verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now we learn that the the Judaizers taught that circumcision, along with obeying other aspects of the ceremonial law, were essential to, to being accepted by God. And on the flip side, Paul has made it abundantly clear that that the gospel is the only way for man to be accepted by God. It's not just that we believe, although we must believe. Salvation is more than just a change in what we believe. It's more than, than just a change in our understanding. It's also a change in who we are. I use the word regeneration. Regeneration simply means to, to be given a new life. 
The, the Bible describes this in many ways. In, in that famous passage in John chapter 3 where Jesus meets with Nicodemus, Jesus tells him that he must be born again, literally born from above. It's a description of, of, of the new life in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 describes those in Christ as being a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And we see this even in the Old Testament. The, the Lord speaking to his people through the, through the prophet Ezekiel. He makes the following promise concerning his people in Ezekiel 11.19. God says this. He says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone and from their flesh give them a heart of flesh. Not flesh in the, in the, in the sinful sense, but flesh in the living sense. What, what a beautiful picture of regeneration. God takes our cold, dead, hardened hearts, hardened by the, the sin that controlled us, and he gives us life. He awakens faith that we'd be reconciled to God. It's a a powerful picture of the God who gives life to the dead. And that was all of us. Listen, dear ones, our, our ongoing struggle against sin is real. But as we grow in our faith and in our intimacy with God, as we submit ourselves to his word, our hearts and our minds become more and more set on those things that, that reflect that we have indeed received new life. The, the, the Judaizers wanted to dra- drag the Galatian Christians ba- back into symbols and, and systems that were designed to be a picture of, of a promise that had yet to be fulfilled. But Paul reveals the, the new life that Jesus gives to those who believe it is actually the proof that God's promises have been fulfilled. The Judaizers wanted to take them back to something that was yet to come. And Paul says, no, no. The promise has come. New life is given. The, the laws re- reminded the Jews that, that God would send the Messiah to save his people and the Gentiles, making them his people as well. And we see that Jesus is that Messiah. Why, why go back to the reminders of a promise yet fulfilled when the fulfillment has come? In verse 16, Paul then pronounces a benediction and a blessing on those who truly believe. He writes this. He says, And as, far, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Peace and mercy to to those who respond by faith to the gospel, not not to those who embrace another gospel. There is no peace. Peace and mercy to, to Christian Jews and Gentiles alike. Both have been restored to God through Christ. There are not two gospels, and there are not two separate groups of people. We are one in Christ. Now, some have struggled with that last phrase, and upon the Israel of God, and, and, and people interpret it in two ways, and it really base, is based on where they stand theologically. There's a school of thought that, that holds to the position that, that Paul is speaking of, of Jewish Christians, 
and another that believes that Paul is speaking of all true believers. Remember, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was God's chosen nation. And I think that given the reason Paul wrote Galatians and the context where we find this phrase, this phrase, Israel of God, is actually a reference to, to Christians of all nationalities. And his point is, is while the Judaizers were trying to make Gentiles Jewish, Jesus makes Jews and Gentiles Christians. The Israel of God, the, the people of God, the church, if you will. And so his point here is simple. Listen, you, you, you don't need to become Jewish to, to, to be accepted by God. You, you need to become Christian. And all are one, Jew and Gentile alike, under the gospel of Christ. We are one people, one nation, one church, all through our faith in Christ. We'll close with, with, with point three, the, the cost of Paul's faithfulness, verses 17 and 18. Paul goes on, he says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Now let's close by, by reflecting briefly on the cost of Paul's faithfulness, contrasted with the attitude that we saw earlier of the false teachers, where Paul says, you know what, they, they're worried about being persecuted for the gospel. I've got on my body what it looks like when you're persecuted for the gospel. Faithfulness comes at a, at a, at a cost. The, the, the false teachers were, were hypocrites, but Paul's life was a clear example of how much he valued the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 21 through 28 is, is one of Paul's clearest descriptions of, of, of things that he endured while taking the gospel to the Gentiles. It, he's actually chastising the Christians, or the Corinthian believers in this passage because they were so impressed by the, by the false teachers that had come in. So he takes time to, to share, to, to boast sarcastically, if you will, what his life has been like as a messenger of the gospel. So listen to the marks on Paul's body. He writes, But whatever anyone else dares boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are, are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the, the, the 40 lashes lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A, a, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from brother, from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, 
There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul endured all of this and much, much more because he understood the importance of of taking the gospel to people who had not heard it. Paul understood that the gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation, and he was willing to endure whatever it cost in order to be faithful to the calling that God had given him. Paul had ministered to the Galatians in person. that They had seen with their own eyes the scars and the wounds that were on his body. They had probably even heard about the things that he had endured after leaving Galatia. That Paul never denounced Christ or repudiated the gospel in the face of such persecution speaks in the loudest possible human terms to how much Paul valued the gospel. Does it not? What do our lives say about how we value Christ, brothers and sisters? This is a question that we would do well to ask ourselves. Church history is filled with brothers and sisters whose lives bore the marks of Christ. Some of these stories are breathtaking, like Richard Wurmbrand, the, the Romanian pastor that we learned about years ago who was beaten and tortured while imprisoned for a total of 14 years for his faith. The, the marks he bore on his body were severe. He was tortured constantly, at one point being placed in solitary confinement for three years in a cell 35 feet below ground, with the mental torture being so great that his guards would put felt on their shoes so they couldn't even hear him come and go. They, they didn't want him to know that there were even people walking in the hallway outside to, to bring his food. They, they were trying to break him mentally. They, 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 would, they would tell him that, that, that his wife and his child had, had rejected the faith or that they were dead, all seeking to, to cause him to renounce Christ. He had four vertebrae in his back broken along with several other bones. They took knives and they carved his body in a dozen places. And then they burned holes in his skin. But through it all, he clung to Christ and even shared the gospel with both his persecutors and the other prisoners. His body literally was a testimony to how much he loved Christ. Now, thankfully, we, we, we may not or we do not face such incredible persecution in our day. But our lives must still reflect our love for Christ. This affects more than simply what we do or we don't do in, in terms of our moral decisions. Oh, I, I can't go here or watch that. But it also affects how we encourage one another and those outside the faith. Being restored to God through faith in Christ must be the defining reality in our lives. This is the message of Galatians. Galatians. 
How do you stand firm under trial? How do you keep from being led astray by false teaching? By treasuring the Christ of the gospel above all else? And rejecting those that would minimize what he has done. We are called to live for God's glory, not our own. For the Galatians, that meant driving the false teaching Judaizers away and, and pursuing love and good works towards one another. For Costi Hen, that meant rejecting the teaching of his own father and his uncle to pursue faithfulness to God's word. For Richard Vermbrand, it meant standing for the gospel in the face of unbelievable torture and hardship. And how that plays out in our lives might look different individually. But make no mistake, how we live speaks loudly to what we truly believe as followers of Christ. Paul concludes his letter by directing us back to the gift of grace that we've received through Christ. He closes with these words, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. It's not by accident that Paul emphasizes grace after he's just spent so much time tearing down teaching that emphasized works as the basis to earn God's favor. Salvation is indeed a gift of God's grace and his kindness towards us, brothers and sisters. And it is my prayer that our lives will reflect the wonder of God's kindness to us to one another, and to the lost and dying world where we live. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. For the book of Galatians, we thank you for Paul's hard words. We thank you for Paul's encouraging words. We thank you for Paul's loving words, all designed to, to direct your people to the purity of the gospel and our calling to be faithful to one another as your followers. Help us, Lord, to have the wisdom that we need, wisdom that is inspired by and informed by your word. Lord, as we face a, a, a myriad of competing messages, both claiming to be Christian and otherwise in this world, we need your wisdom to be faithful, O oh God. Strengthen us, we pray, to walk faithfully and to live lives which, which testify in the loudest possible terms to all who know us the value of knowing Christ. Whether that lead us to, to, to physical torture or, or simply the scorn of our peers. Lord, no matter what that be, help us to stand firm for the glory of your name. For there is no greater calling in our lives. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.